So Money episode 1568, Recovering from Perfectionism and Creating Habits That Work with Monica Packer, founder of About Progress. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Doing your best most of the time over time is how you form consistency. We think consistency means no flexibility, but with women, it's the opposite. In order to be consistent, you must have flexibility. And we don't think that works with habit formation. It absolutely does. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Do you struggle with the fear of failure? I'm raising my hand. It's totally normal. I dedicate a whole chapter to that in my book, A Healthy State of Panic. And my guest today has her own complex relationship with failure. Monica Packer is our guest. She is a normal mom and a self-described recovering perfectionist who uncovered the truest model to lasting growth. It's progress made practical. Monica is a podcaster and coach. She guides women to find sustainable growth by a adopting progress over perfection. She's a mom of six, a former middle school teacher, a forever Oprah fangirl, a perpetual cookie dough maker, and a beginning gardener. She and I talk about why it's more important to be interested in the journey and not the end product, the things that she does every day that scare her, and her sometimes complicated relationship with her Mormon faith. Here's Monica Packer. Monica Packer, welcome to So Money. Great to have you on the show. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to get it, into it with you. I first want to tell everybody a little bit about who you are. I, I know I want, to, I want to talk about who you are professionally, but also personally. I think the sure. fact that you are managing your career and your professional life, as well as the very big family that you're also managing is is exceptional. Really, these days, people aren't even sure if they can afford children, let alone have a career and uh, be present for their families. And, and you seem to have found a way and your way is not perfection. You talk about yeah. progress. So maybe mm-hmm. we could start there, maybe getting to that realization that brand now that you have uh, created that that platform but getting there your own personal story sure well i first want to say my costco receipt yesterday made me really wonder <laughs> if i do, you do the this right choices i always do this at costco i go my husband and i will go what do you think it's going to be what do you think yes and i always say i'm always way over i always like oh this has to be like $900 and then it's like 250 I think so that's I how always we, that's how we manage me. Yes, I underestimate and I always get sticker shock. So especially now, but uh, let's, so my story, I, it kind of actually starts with uh, motherhood for me and feeling stuck in it. I, I was um, before I became a mom, I was a middle school teacher, loved what I did, um, really had wanted to go back to get my Ph.D., but it was right in the middle of the recession it just didn't feel like a wise financial choice because we were just both starting out like 21 and 24 when we got married, my husband and I very young. Um, so I went into teaching instead. And uh, after I taught for a couple of years, I had my first child and then became mostly a stay-at-home mom. 
I did other things on the side. Like I still helped out with the school I taught at and did track coach. And I was a piano teacher and I helped um, new teachers learn how to teach basically. Anyway, about, I don't know, eight years into all of that, I realized I was really stuck in my life and I was really not showing up as the mom I wanted to be. And in large part, it was because I had put so much of my own self aside from goals and ambitions to even habits to ways of just finding fulfillment in my life. I was good at showing up for my kids. I was good at showing up for our responsibilities, but for myself, it was all on the sidelines. And that's when I had a great therapist. Luckily, I got a good therapist who helped me see that I was actually a perfectionist. And I didn't know I was because I would not have qualified myself as one. For the first 20 years of my life, for sure, like top grades, top achievements, exceptional grades in college. Like I, I loved school. I loved performing, but I crashed and burned as a 20 year old with multiple eating disorders and mental health crises. And I went the other side of this pendulum swing of perfectionism. I just didn't know it was Mm -hmm. still perfectionism. And that was staying safe in the nothing because I knew what the all required of me. And I couldn't do that anymore. I didn't Ah. want to do that. So I found myself in the same situation as I did when I was 20 of being similarly depressed and stuck and lost, but for different reasons. And that's when I had to lean into progress and and just kind of start this experiment. Like, can I grow? Can Mm -hmm. I achieve things? Can I have hobbies? Can I have habits? Um, If I'm not trying to just be perfect at them. And the answer is yes. And not only yes, it's like an astounding yes. I've grown exponentially the last eight years than I did both as an overachieving and as an underachieving perfectionist. That's so fascinating that your therapist identified it as perfectionism because I I'm hearing you and I'm like, I wouldn't have even thought of that either. And I have friends too, who I, I feel like have similar pasts where they were the A student achievers. And as soon as life presented with uncertainty, uncertainty that was beyond their realm, rather than show up and experiment and do the thing that may not seem like success, but hey, it's progress. They remained stuck. They chose stasis. They chose, my friend chose to not say, take any job, just take a job after college, whatever. Like every job sucks after college. Like you're not going to have the dream job, but she wanted in her mind, this vision of a, and she felt she very entitled to it because she had worked really hard in college and other people seem to have been able to get these jobs. So rather than just go do something where at 21, 22, anything is a learning experience. She continued to be a server at the diner in her hometown and remained in her childhood bedroom for, I think, far too long. And, and she is a, but now to hear you talk about it, like she was the perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And so you said that when you were on the other side of perfectionism, what is that? Can you go a little bit further? Like, what did that look like? Because you said you were like living in the nothing and Mm -hmm. what is, how did that manifest? So I brought up motherhood only because to me, it was my relationships. I was showing up as just a resentful person. I, I, I feel like I wasn't myself. I wasn't handling things well. Um, and now we know, uh, out of the five kids, we've got three are neurodivergent. I know you've got 
um, one yourself. Um, mm-hmm. My oldest is autistic as well, but it's, I, I didn't know what was going on with my kids yet. They were still too young for us to have those labels that have yeah. actually helped more than hindered. Um, but I wasn't able to show up to their needs as well, because I felt like it wasn't me inside. It was someone else leading and it just came out as just resentment or anger at the most inopportune times and over the most mundane things that I did not um, deserve the level of reaction I got or I was giving to them. Um, so it, it was that, but it was also a lot of um, looking around me and seeing all these things I had wanted to do and I never did them. Like I had wanted to write for like a decade because I used to write a ton and I never did because I didn't think it'd be good enough or that no, anybody would read it or it would lead to anything. I loved interior design, but I didn't want to explore that just in case, like I got the education or the certi- their certificate for it and it didn't get anywhere. And, you know, I analyzed all those things, like what are the things I have put on my list of things I'd like to do, but I've never explored. And it was plentiful. <laughs> it was mm. so much. So I saw that too. I want to get into some of those things that you do now. One thing you talk about is how you try to do something that scares you every day. And I love that. Um, Going back to though, the how of how you arrived at this other side of perfectionism where you sort of lost yourself. How much of that do you think was a derivative of being young and becoming a mother young? Yeah. And it's so overwhelming. And, and also maybe the pressures of your culture, maybe your religion, you talk about being Mormon, like what were sort of the external factors that you think contributed to getting you to that point? So many, and actually there's so many layers to this, but it's always surprised me how many people can relate regardless of if they share the same background as me um, and, and, and faith. Cause I think this is pretty shared universally by women um, placing our value on what people can see both appearance wise and our outcomes, what we can achieve, what we can prop up as see, I, I am worth it because these things show it, or my body shows, I have it together or uh, my children even, or my job. And when you get stuck in that place of, of that's what really perfectionism is Farnoosh. It's like a, a misplacement. I call it a misplacement of identity. You're, you're placing who you are on things that other people can see, which means you're always in a lose-lose situation. You will never arrive to the point where you can be validated in this loss of self. So that, yeah, there's a lot of layers here. I, I haven't thought too deeply yet about the age and all of that. Like, you know, uh, if that was a, a factor and I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was because not only have I grown in maturity and years, I've grown in knowing who I am better and getting kind of like sucked into a role, a major role, a major responsibility that often is an identity too. Um, that was kind of tricky to do at such a young age. Um, and hard to learn how to separate myself from my role and my responsibility. I actually have, uh, I've been prepping a short episode on this for my podcast, uh, you know, knowing who you are outside of your roles and responsibilities, like your role as a lawyer or as a teacher or as a mother or as a wife, they all matter, but they can't be who you are. You have to bring yourself to them. And I had to learn that the hard way, like the reverse way I had to learn because I had the effects of not doing that, just be smashed in my face day after day. of see like, this isn't working. 
this way of doing life is not working. And I had to learn how to bring myself to those roles and responsibilities. I want to listen to that episode. So be sure you let me know when you finish recording that. Sure. Sure. Bring yourself to the profession. We so often do it the other way around. We bring work home. We bring work to our everything. You started your blog when you said nobody was reading them (laughs) at the exact Uh moment, at the exact (laughs) moment. And yet, and yet you cultivated a very intimate and engaged audience. And I want to know what triggers your audience, like in a great way, what are the topics that seem to just never get old that, um, and even things that maybe they're teaching you. Cause I know with hosting this show nine years, I learned not just from my guests, but from my audience members, as far as what they're curious about. And that informs what we talk about. I feel that as a listener to your show, like the community matters, but also this collective learning experience to you that you're not just coming as an expert, which you are in many ways, you're also there to learn. And that very much was a factor for me and my community. Um, we were a community, not a fan club. People aren't there just to say like, this is the Monica show. This is a collective work of us learning how to grow exponentially, but outside of these prescriptions and all or nothing, often patriarchal models that we've been given. Um, you know, some of the topics I think have just come from my own struggles through them. One of my biggest struggles, and I, I didn't plan on talking this about this, so you're, you're free to, um, to, to take this out, but my own faith struggles, uh, because I was finding a lot of contradiction between where I felt I was politically as a feminist and, and where I was within my own faith, which is a very patriarchal faith. Um, we have that in our culture, it's just in our water too. So it's kind of everywhere, but that was a big issue for me internally. And in sharing that I connected to so many women going through the same thing across all faiths. In fact, one of my favorite people to talk to about this is this guy from New York. So not even like a woman, but who was Jewish and struggling through a same kind of thing. And we, we chat online about that. So it's been, it's been kind of just sharing about the mess. So much of what we did when we started, it was about being the expert being the person that has the beautiful Instagram photos and like having someone come and take your photo or being on a show and sharing all the advice of which we have much to share. Like we do, but I think what has resonated the most is just being able to share a bit of the mess, being Mm -hmm. able to model what it looks like to grow and to change and how it's hard. And it's a struggle and you don't get on this rocket ship that goes off to space. Sometimes you're on a tricycle pedaling as hard as you can back down on earth. And it feels really hard because other people seem to be achieving things so easily. And women being able to see that in me, even just with my podcast and my work, I have people who are just like cheering on my podcast because they know it's been a slow grow. And it's been that way in habit formation. It's been that way with helping my neurodivergent kids. It's been that way with my faith and with my, my marriage they have a place that helps them feel I'm, I'm not doing it wrong. I've been taught things wrong. I've been taught it's supposed to be easy. I've been given prescriptions that don't work for my real life. And I've been lied to. I'm not broken. The methods I've been given are broken. Yes. Yes. I do appreciate you bringing up your faith and the messiness there. I think that is universal for anyone who is faith-based has a faith, like women in particular, because yeah. aren't all religions, like, I mean, they're patriarchal, uh, yeah. except maybe paganism. I don't know. <laughs> is that a, is that, can I say that? Um, sure. 
how did you reconcile wrestle with that? How did you get on the other side of that? Because you're still Mormon. You still identify, yeah. right? As Mormon. So what changed for you? I think it came to my own, back to my own identity piece. A, a big part of why that was such a hard struggle is because I have been taught my whole life. If I seek for answers, they will come. And I was seeking for those answers and they weren't coming. <laughs> And they weren't coming for a very long time. And instead of seeking outside of myself, kind of controversially, I learned to seek inwardly. And to me, it's not controversial. I feel like God is in us or the universe, whatever other power there is out there. And finding more about who I am internally is what helped me be okay with the conflict on the outside. I know for myself what I believe is right. And oftentimes that butts heads with, you know, members of my, my faith, but also members of my family and my neighborhood right. and, and everything out there. And I can, I can be quiet and because my own inner knowing, which I feel like is, is God in me. And, and because of that, I mean, not to have a full faith discussion, I feel like I've been able to stay with my faith, but also with the, the open eyes to it. Like, I'm not afraid of the wrestle. Yeah. I'm not afraid of the nuance and the gray. So many people, like you said, perfectionism is a certainty illness. We thrive off of certainty. And I felt that way with my faith and now being able to say, I'm not certain of most things has helped me actually stay in a pretty messy religion. Hmm. Wow. That's an honest way. That's an honest way to approach not just religion, but also so much else in life. Parenting. I don't oh. know anything. I am yes. constantly being schooled. And I think yeah. that is where the friction exists is where you go into a situation thinking, I know everything. I had a guest on the show the other day, highly successful CEO, entrepreneur, mom. Uh, and she said, I am not a know-it-all. I am a learn-it-all. And that has oh, been- I love that. How, yeah. Because I said, how do you have- four amazing, like four exits, four different companies that you've exited from. And oh, I just like, listened to that episode. <laughs> yes. With Divya Gugnani, founder of Wander Beauty and all your Sephora's and uh, online. And she just said, I, I, I don't pretend to know anything. I go into meetings. Yes. With some ideas, but my job is to hear from everybody and then make a collective decision on behalf of everybody. So I thought that was really mature and not something you often learn in MBA school. No. Um, so uh, yes, weren't planning on going there, but I did want to ask about your faith a little bit because you talk about on your blog as how it is kind of complex and messy, your relationship with um, with the Mormon faith. All right, moving on to the habits that you have yeah. found work for you. And if there is a prescription for all of us listening on how to form our own habits that are more aligned with progress than perfection, um, what works for you these days? So this is something I totally fell into on accident. I did not plan to get into habit formation, to even be interested in personally, because I thought there was only one method, only one model of all or nothing. Like in order to form habits, you decide the habit you want, you stick with it for 28 days, sometimes a hundred, depending on who you're listening to. And then you have a habit. But for my real life, 
I'm like putting out fires all the time over here. I mean, even if I have a set aside work time, this happened a couple of months ago. I sat down, I had my babysitter. We just barely started having that, which was so helpful with, with the baby I've got. And as soon as I sat down, my neighbor texted who was deaf and needed help communicating with her pest control guy. So I left and did that, but you know what? This happens all over the world to women, period, that there we are more reactionary. Our roles are more reactionary in general, depending on even if you work from home or don't, or have children or don't, or retired or not, we have more responsibilities that make us be more reactive. And because of that, we don't have the consistency in our day-to-day schedules that make it so that we can follow the methods we've been given of habit formation. Right. I have a lot more to say on that. It's a lot of research back reasons on why that is, but that's what I experienced in my real life. I got to this point in my own development of self where I, I hit a plateau. I, I couldn't grow anymore because I wasn't sleeping well or because I didn't have time to myself, which I learned is really vital to my own sense of self and self-care too. Um, I, I didn't have the time I needed to work on my own ambitions, my own pursuits. And that came down to habit formation. And, you know, I was following all the latest New York times bestseller books on that, and they still weren't working for me. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Something's wrong with me. But, you know, furnish, I found working with other women, I was coaching and we were using the same methods that we were learning that they were having the same experience that they weren't able to borrow these methods that these good men were teaching us and the great methods they had because they weren't designed for women. Mm -hmm. And so I had to work on figuring out, well, then what does work for women? And it's not an all or nothing thing either. It's not like, well, everything they said is crap. So let's just throw it out the window. And it's also not like, just grit your teeth. You decide today, like it's not that toxic positivity route. Like if it doesn't work for you, well, you're just a failure. Instead, we had to learn a new way. I was just saying the other day, my office is on the first floor of our home. Yeah. It has one door and two non-doors. Like there's two openings, (laughs) there's three openings into this room. Two have no doors. One has a door. So anyone can come in at any time. No privacy. I can see what's happening. I can, yeah, I'm like, I'm right by the kitchen. And my point here is that my husband's office at home is on the third floor where there's three locks before you get to his office yeah, and he can just completely tune out and be like fully dedicated to work. And I could too, but it's kind of tempting when you're like right by the kitchen and the dishwasher beep is going off that, okay, I'm going to like unload the dishwasher or I'm going to go and do something domestic. And so I, I don't, I'm not complaining. I like the setup. Like I don't want to be on the third floor away from the world, sure. but I think that speaks to sort of the, the traditional gender role divisions of also like, we often hear about how men are much better at compartmentalizing. Whereas women like we've, cause also we've been like conditioned to just like do it all, all the time in all the yes. ways. I was going to say, my friend Eve Rotsky will say it's because they're allowed to. It's a, they're, they're allowed, allowed to, to right. They're allowed to. So I've given him permission to, to have the upstairs office, but no, you're right. I remember reading a self-help book in uh, my thirties called the one thing, which mm. I think was on the bestseller list for, I have that forever. on here too. Have it. And I can appreciate <laughs> yes. it. Like I, yeah, I, of I, course. you know, I think about like, you know, in a world where this could like work for me, but it's just not practical to be, yeah. just have that like sort of laser focus. I get it. I get the merits. I see how it works, 
but um, tell me something that I can actually accomplish and do and not let people down all the time. Yes. In the pursuit of that. Yeah. Well, do you want to do that with habit formation a little bit here? Because we can take one of the ideas that we've been taught and and kind of just share how that doesn't work in the real world and then how it actually can work. So let's talk about consistency. And when I said it takes 28 days to form a habit, is that what you had in mind too? Or was there a different number? Yeah, 28, 30 days. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People usually say 21, 28, 30, 100 days of consistency. And when we think of consistency, we think of rigidity, right? Like the same habit at the same-ish time of day, day after day, or however many days it's supposed to happen. Mm. And that doesn't work when you... Like, even if you start your period, okay, let's be honest, like (laughs) hormonal shifts or a deaf neighbor who needs your weather, yeah, (laughs) weather, but even like, so even if we're just talking about biology, we don't have that same kind of rigidity to be able to count on day after day of our abilities to show up, but also responsibility wise, this is, this is a fact again, for all women, whether they work from home in the home, outside of the home, have children or not, they have the high majority of invisible labor in their homes and in their communities and in their workplaces. Like just who plans your work parties? Most of the time it's the women, right? So because of that, we do consistency differently. And it's not because we're lazy. It's because we're not robots. So this is my definition of consistency. Consistency is doing your best most of the time over time. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at here is your best is allowed to change. Best isn't 110% every single day. Your best is allowed to change. And I'll teach you what that looks like. Over time means we are playing the long game, just like your listeners do with their investments. You do this with habit formation. You're playing the long game. You don't start out with the ideal. You start with, come back to that. And then over time is the biggest factor. So doing your best most of the time over time is how you form consistency. We think consistency means no flexibility, but with women, it's the opposite. In order to be consistent, you must have flexibility. And we don't think that works with habit formation. It absolutely does. And that's where the baselines come in. Is it a coincidence that the people that I know in my life that insist on certainty and are rigid are usually the unhappiest? (laughs) And often why we fail at our our habits, right? Because we think gosh, I woke up at six instead of 530. I'm a failure. Yeah. There is a lot of science to what you say, as you know, I just read something recently. I don't know who, where I came across it, but exactly what you said, basically they did, they took two cohorts. One cohort was required to do the same workout at the same time every day, five days a week. And then the other cohort was given more flexibility. Like you have different times during the day that you can do it. Um, you can have a rest day, whatever. Like, I don't know. Basically the cohort that was given flexibility was the most successful in terms of getting more workouts in. So that made and me it, feel better because- longer too. Yes, yes, of course. Like if you're telling me every morning I have to get up at 5 a.m. and do pull-ups, you know, you've lost me at 5 a.m. For sure. Yeah, I, I think it's really great what you're saying because so much of the self-help and the, especially when it pertains to- professional success, we Mm -hmm. read so many of the like, wake up early. This is how you do it. You know, 
and in health too, like making sure you're, there's just, I feel like there's so much misinformation over information, but let's go more back to this framework. I like this of, okay. okay so what I'm learning is that rigidity out the door. Consistency does not mean every day, all day, the same time of day forever. Mm-hmm. It's that and we talk about having an eye on the long on the long goalpost on this show. Yes. What are some other things to think about as we're developing habits? I would start by realizing what often is blocking a return on investment for habits is the shoulds that come into play too. Just mm-hmm. like you talked about, in order to have a good morning routine, that means you wake up really early and we could all probably list off. You meditate, you exercise, you shower, you have silence. You like, you know, we have that list because a lot of people are good at being able to do that. But if you have a lot of responsibilities, that means you have to be more flexible in showing up to them, um, then that probably isn't going to work for you. So instead it's reframing what habits are and habits are not metrics you're supposed to meet in order to qualify yourself as a good person or good enough to be a certain type of person. They are there to support you period. That's -hmm. what habits are. And, and knowing that will free you up to choose the ones you actually want that are going to help you in your season and to help you meet your wants and your needs and to do them in the way that works for you. So that's another kind of flexibility piece right there is a morning routine is it can work for you. You can choose that should that you're given like that having a morning routine would help you. But if you know, it's only there to support you, you can do it in a way that works for you like a half an hour earlier than maybe other people in your household. And, and, and what you do in that time can be all about you instead of it being about you having to support the habit. It's there to support you. So starting there. And I do want to talk about baselines too, because that's really, really important. What Mm -hmm. is a baseline? So this is where we are talking about the long game and consistency with built-in flexibility. So habit formation works best with built-in flexibility, especially for women. Again, not because we're lazy. We're just not robots. So how we do this is oftentimes when we are trying to start a habit, we're starting with the ideal mm-hmm. and the ideal is valid and we can and should be working towards it, but we cannot start there. And the reason why is it takes a lot of energy and that energy has to come from somewhere, which often means you're sacrificing in another part of your life, which is not sustainable or just the energy output isn't sustainable and you burn out. So If you're playing the long game and forming habits, instead of starting with the ideal, you begin with what I call the baseline, which is the smallest and simplest version of your ideal is the version of the habit that you can do on your worst of day when you're sick or when people in your household are sick, or when you have a big deadline at work or a mental health crisis, like what is the simplest and smallest version of that habit that becomes your baseline. And when you have that baseline and you start there, you are able to build not only faster, but more consistently because habits still live and die by consistency. It's just the different framing that we have provided today, but you have the consistency you need to have that habit stick over time because it requires a lot lower amount of energy. Yes. Well, you said it like in your investments, right? Yes. Uh, sometimes the tips, the, the advice is what is the least amount that you can save today? Like, yeah. Really, you know, what is the lowest hanging fruit that you can take and and leverage? Um, because, and even I can see this applying to budgets where we often say like, it's kind of 
meant to be more of an exercise for when someone is really anxious and worried about scarcity or losing their job. It's like, okay, before any of that happens, let's hope it doesn't. But if that happens, like right now, your responsibility is to like, look at your budget. What is the least amount that you could live off of, right? Like what are the things in your budget that are nice to haves, but not really things that you would want to continue affording if you had half of a paycheck or no paycheck. Mm -hmm. And um, that I think not only it not only solves for the anxiety in the moment, but it also, it opens your eyes to all the potential as well. Like so much potential, you know, if I actually were to do this budget now when I'm still making money, like what other things could I add to it that I haven't? Because I've been kind of going through the motions, you know, life just sort of takes over and you start to buy things and subscribe to things that you think you're supposed to do, like your shoulds. This is fantastic. I love this. Before we go, I want to hear from you about what you're doing that scares you intentionally, scares you, you're doing it. Yeah. I write about this in my Mm -hmm. book as well, how sometimes if you're fearing failure, uh, maybe do stuff that you know is not going to be a win, but maybe you enjoy the process and that like, it's not even about the winning or the failing, but it's about the journey. I'll start with my, my job. My podcast is my big thing of doing what I, what scares me. I mean, talking to you today was scary for me. Serious. You're so (laughs) good at it. Yes. I had to do my power pose before getting on this call Mm -hmm. and like write down some notes and take deep breaths. You know, it's, it's a big part of what I do. It's also a big part of how I practice what I preach about personal development. There's been nothing more trying and uh, testing of my sense of self and, and my methods about personal progress than this podcast. And then this coaching that I do as part of this business. So showing up is a big experiment for me every day. Like, can I mess up? Can I fail? Can I launch something and it not go well and still keep going? Um, But personally, I mean, if I'm going to take it back to habits a little bit and the return on investment for people who might be thinking about that, it takes a lot of courage to do the small things. I actually had a, a client say that. She said, it takes the greatest of courage to do the smallest of things. And it's been that way for me this year. I've adjusted to having our fifth kid. It was five years after having our last child. I thought I knew what to expect and I did, but still I was completely flattened (laughs) by, by this new addition to our family. And he is a sweetheart and I've had really hard kids in the past of babies, you know, especially my autistic daughter. Like that was a very challenging baby. And I've kind of been in this place of like, what's, what's wrong with me? I can't get anything done. I can't even shower. Like, and it's, it's been scary for me to fall back on my baselines. Of being able to say, it's okay that I am doing a 10 minute walk instead of my full hour long workout. It's okay that I'm writing one line in my journal instead of a full page. It's scary to do those things, but I have to tell you, Farnoosh, I feel like I'm turning a corner, which is great. We're like almost eight months in. So it's taken a lot longer than it has with my others. But at the same time, having the courage to do the small things has helped me be supported in ways that I desperately needed. And I couldn't have had if I only made it possible with the all versions of the ways of supporting myself. So mm-hmm. that's what I have to say. Oh, and maybe I can throw in a third there is my my third neurodivergent child just got diagnosed. <laughs> so now I'm like diving into, you know, trying to be brave about trying new things and having hard conversations with teachers at school that maybe not be understanding this child or asking for help from a doctor who's just like, I don't know, like, what's the big deal? You know, stuff like that. So 
That's well, it. Those kids are lucky to have you. What you are such an advocate for them at this point. You know it all. Like you know, it's like you know you know how to hit the ground running at least no, when someone tells you. The well, with the, with the diver <laughs> with the neurodivergence. No, but I think yes. There's some parts of it. I'm like, I do know how to do this. I know how to be a beginner. Uh, I know how to advocate. It's just more. It's like this is my third ADHD child and it's so different than my other two that I'm like, oh. I, promote, if, I wonder if now we should start diagnosing the non-ADHD kids. Like I everyone who has to. ADHD is actually <laughs> neuro uh, non-divergent. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I really loved having you on the podcast and I hope that we get to meet in real life and I, I will so be, I, I, I love all your work. I'll be following you even more and I can't wait to be on your show about progress. Thank you. I can't wait to have you and to dig in, especially to fear of failure, which I think yeah. is a big issue. It's a good one. Thank you so much, Monica. Thanks so much to Monica for joining us. You can learn more about her work and her podcast at aboutprogress.com. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money. money.